Hello and welcome to Through the Science Lens, a brand new podcast series from Agilent. I'm Phoebe Small, a member of the Reputation Marketing Team here at Agilent. And today I'm joined by two very special guests, Dr. Darlene Solomon, Chief Technology Officer at Agilent, and Dr. Stephen Pennington, Professor of Proteomics at University College Dublin. Thank you both for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you, Phoebe. Yeah, thank you, Phoebe. It's a pleasure. It's great talking to you. So today, um, as you both know, we're going to be talking about the notion of bringing great science to life and um, really what that truly means in relation to the century of biology. So before we dive in, Darlene, uh, for those who maybe haven't been introduced to you before, uh, do you want to tell everyone just a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Agilent? Sure, thank you. So I started as a scientist in our advanced research labs uh, right out of grad school. That was uh, following a PhD in chemistry, uh, MIT and, and bachelor's from Stanford. And after about five years as a scientist, I had the opportunity to try out management. I turned out I liked that a lot. And it's been, been really a great career as opportunities expanded over the years to, to take on uh, more responsibilities. And I've been Agilent's chief technology officer since 2006. My direct organization has three uh, kind of major team areas. One is Agilent Research Labs. That's our centralized interdisciplinary longer range R&D. It's, it's really that, that kind of more disruptive innovation in support of our core businesses, as well as uh, early work in expanding into some of the high growth, but more emerging opportunity areas for science and technology. I also lead our global university research programs. That's how we have a number of areas for academic collaborations with uh, leading faculty over throughout the world and our investments and partnerships with startup companies, uh, which is a really important part of the, the overall innovation ecosystem. And we uh, partner with startups in areas that are of particularly high strategic relevance to, to Agilent. Thanks, Darlene. That, that's great. Lots, lots going on. Um, and Steve, do you care to share a little bit about yourself and, and your work at uh, yeah. University College Dublin? Yeah, I'd be delighted to, Phoebe. But firstly, before I do, just say that Darlene's career is super impressive and mine is much less so. Um, hardly, hardly, Steve, <laughs> but thank you. No, I mean, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, so I started my academic career uh, by doing an undergraduate Bachelor Degree of Science at Imperial College of Science and Technology in London. I was incredibly uh, fortunate to be taught by some of the world leaders in chemistry, the individuals who wrote the textbooks in chemistry, physical, inorganic and organic chemistry, but also then to morph into a, a joint degree in chemistry and biochemistry, where I did neurochemistry. And, and at that time had the opportunity to be instructed by an individual called Howard Morris, who developed a technique called fast atom bombardment mass spectrometry. And so that was my first exposure to mass spectrometry. And I have to confess, I didn't understand it and I didn't particularly like it. Um, but what became apparent, because he was also then working with a, a colleague in the department, a guy called John Hughes, they used mass spectrometry to characterize the encephalins. And, and, and those were peptides. And I suppose that was my first introduction to the importance of, of peptides and, and proteins. So I went on to do a, a PhD in, in biochemistry, in, in particular lipid metabolism, at the University of Cambridge, where I studied lipid metabolism in insulin signaling. 
and soon got fascinated by the proteins involved in signaling pathways. And, and I've had a passion for the importance of proteins, not just in signaling pathways, but in biology in general uh, ever since. I think that's an equally impressive career as, as Darlene. So thanks for sharing that. Um, so Steve, I know it's in your title, you know, Professor of Proteomics, but um, would you be able to summarize, you know, what is proteomics? How would you best describe it? Yeah, so that's a great question, Phoebe, and one that I often get asked. And before I answer it, I'll just sort of like to sort of chip in and say that it never ceases to surprise me that when you ask the sort of, you know, colleagues and friends and, and people across all sort of walks of society, if they know what proteomics is, they don't. But if you ask them if they know what genomics is, they think they do. And so I think the world of proteomics has really been remiss in not being able to get the message about how important proteomics is. Um, so maybe I can get another bash at, at that now. And I suppose the proteome uh, is a term that was coined by Mark Wilkins in the, in the mid 1990s. And he sort of defined it and, and characterized it as uh, studying all of the proteins expressed or potentially expressed from the genome in a cell or a tissue or an organism. And at that time, we called the, the field proteome analysis, but a few years later, it, it morphed into proteomics. And I suppose proteomics is an assembly of all of the technologies, so the physical technologies, but also the informatics technologies that allow us to study proteins on a, on a genome-wide scale. I, I think the second part of the question maybe is, you know, why do that and why is it important? And, yeah. and I would argue very strongly that it's important because proteins are the vital elements of cells. They're the, the active agents in cells. So the things that, you know, that I that get fascinated me about, about the function of cells is largely driven by proteins. And I know that's a very protein-centric view of the world, but as professor of proteomics, I, I'm sort of mandated to have a protein-centric view of the world. So, you know, thinking more about your work at uh, University College Dublin, Steve, um, can you tell us a bit more about your research projects and, and what exciting things you've got going on? Yeah, certainly. So I suppose I've mentioned before that, that, that the Conway Institute is a multidisciplinary institute that brings together basic scientists and clinicians. And that really afforded me the opportunity to work with clinicians to try to address questions in, in human disease. Uh, and and our, the focus of our research really has morphed into using proteomics to identify biomarkers of disease, better biomarkers of disease states, biomarkers that can identify individuals with disease, uh, predict the prognosis, that is the, the outcome of those individuals, maybe predict whether they will respond to a, a specific treatment. And, and so in the early days, we were really fortunate to be part of a, an Irish prostate cancer research consortium, again, that brought together clinicians and basic scientists to, to identify protein, but also other potential biomarkers, molecular biomarkers of relevance in, in prostate cancer. More recently, we've expanded that research in, into the area of inflammatory disease. Uh, and I've been really fortunate to work for, for well over a decade now with a world leading rheumatologist. So he happened to be based in an affiliated hospital a few hundred meters from the Conway Institute and is now based in the Conway Institute. Uh, and together we, we sought to identify the key unmet needs in, in, in his speciality, which is psoriatic arthritis. So psoriatic arthritis is a bit like proteomics. Everybody's heard of rheumatoid arthritis in the way that everybody's heard of genomics, but a lot of people haven't heard of psoriatic arthritis, despite it being a major uh, health issue. So a lot of people have heard of the disease psoriasis, which is a skin disease, 
And about 30% of patients with psoriasis will go on to get a form of, of arthritis associated with their skin disease, and that's psoriatic arthritis. And it has really significant and negative potential outcomes for the patients. So I've been working to identify proteins that may, be, may meet some of the key unmet needs in psoriatic arthritis over a number of years uh, using you know, existing and what were at the time and continued perhaps to be state-of-the-art proteomics methodologies uh, to identify protein biomarkers, or candidate protein biomarkers. Oh, that's, that's incredible. It's really important work. So today we're talking about bringing great science to life and um, the century of biology. Darlene, if you could um, maybe explain what it means in layman terms and, you know, really shed light on why the 21st century is being described as century of biology. Yeah, yeah great, great question and, and, and observations, Phoebe. Cancer research is progressing at an incredible rate. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of contributions to that incredible progress. I think in large part, it's really about the vast amount of DNA sequence information that's now available, but it's beyond that. And it's the new layers of biological understanding that we're continuing to, to grow in terms of really understanding cancer, the disease, as well as how to, how to treat. And so there's additional layers of biological understanding or about additional molecular information, absolutely proteomics, but also metabolomics and lipidomics and so forth, but also how all that molecular information comes together in cellular pathways and cellular communication that are continuing to be revealed as, as the great science comes to life. So to kind of come more to the century of biology part of this, I think we're going to look back on today as the early years of what might rightfully be called the century of biology. If we look at Agilent market and technology waves over the last several decades, for the most part, they've been grounded in the physical science, evolution of electronics, computers, chemical analysis, communications, the internet, <clears throat> very much based on, on physical science capabilities. But now we're seeing some emerging waves that are, have the potential to be just as impactful that are based on life science. So related to how biology is transforming healthcare, we have precision medicine again, which is our ability to understand and treat disease at this molecular level. And, and that's really becoming well-established in areas like oncology. But in addition to that, we're on the cusp of a next wave, which is taking all this understanding of biological information and how biology works and really connecting that into the next wave of industrial manufacturing and cellular processes and cellular manufacturing where we can reprogram biological cells for useful and practical purposes. And, and that's going to enable the bioeconomy and also some very attractive, more sustainable alternatives to how a lot of petroleum-based manufacturing is, is happening today. So with these two waves, we're really seeing this move to life sciences and what may well continue to become the century of biology. Darlene, just wondering, in your experience, how would you say great science is, is brought to life from, from Agilent's perspective? I think that, you know, a few areas that um, we're focusing on that maybe are especially interesting and, and relevant include CRISPR cell engineering and live cell analysis, uh, two areas, again, very much along the kind of 
um, you know, kind of research to clinical diagnostics, therapeutics continuum. And we're also really expanding our efforts in, in data science and AI to both accelerate what can be gleaned from data that our researchers and, and customers are, are accessing. So being able to do that more efficiently and um, get to outcomes and answers more quickly, you know, again, through the, the whole clinical research therapeutics continuum, but also to be able to use the data science and AI to really interrogate data in ways that to get more information that hadn't previously been possible. But CRISPR is a revolutionary technology. I'm sure everyone in the audience has heard about it. Uh, it's for gene editing and cell engineering in research, as well as areas like cell and gene therapy. It's experienced a truly unprecedented rate of adoption from academia, government labs, and industrial research labs throughout the world because it is so much faster and easier to use than previous methods for doing cell editing. And uh, so we are at Agilent, a leader in the synthesis of nucleic acids, oligonucleotides, DNA, and RNA-based. And in CRISPR, the real brains of the technology is the guide RNA, which recognizes the sequence to be edited. It gives it the specificity. And so we are in Agilent providing very long and high fidelity guide RNAs that can lead to improved editing performance from research scale all the way through to GMP guides for, for therapeutic use. So that's that's a big area for us on the CRISPR um, cell engineering. You said the data science was also an area, Phoebe, you know, integrating technologies like machine learning and data analytics into our workflows. And this, this is truly Agilent-wide. It's happening uh, on our mass spec platforms. It is uh, a very important technologies like machine learning are in um, image analysis. And that comes into a lot of our cell analysis capabilities, as well as areas like digital pathology, where you're looking at the morphology of, of tissues and cell-cell interactions. So in uh, I think when I think about the data science and machine learning, in some cases, it's accelerating the scientific outcomes. And in other cases, you know, really truly enabling researchers to ask and answer questions that was not previously before possible. Mm -hmm. Very true. Um, so, and Steve, I wanted to ask you, how would you say great science is, is brought to life? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Phoebe, because I think what brings great science to life is having a great question. A great question that's that's guided by a, a sort of a, a an advanced understanding of the current state of the art of the of the field, and of course that can only be you know that question can only be answered potentially by generating data using the latest technologies, uh, and so it's really impressive to hear that that Agilent are developing many of those latest technologies that will underlie the biology of the future and are interacting to to continue to develop those based on advances in the biology. Yeah. See, those are great, great comments. You know, I would just say that, you know, it all comes back to the, the direction of science having greater scale and greater complexity in everything that you're describing here. And, and that does get beyond what we can process readily as individual people, right? Yeah. And that's, and, and, but, but you do want the, the AI and the data science to be helping enable and not necessarily 
unquestioned in terms of the assumptions and what's gone into Absolutely. the generation of that data. Uh, exactly. So yeah. I think that brings a really an, another important point, and, and that is that now increasingly these sort of developments that we do and the experiments we do, it's it's a team. It's a team of people who've got expertise maybe in understanding the clinical aspects of, of a disease, if we're talking about human diseases, the scientists who understand the technologies and can apply them appropriately, uh, the, you know, the, the, in, the individuals who can extract the data, those who can analyze the data and then bringing the team together to be able to interpret it. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a diff again, a very different world from the undergraduate world that, and postgraduate world that I grew up in. And so I, I think it's just phenomenal to see the, the next generation of, of this century of, of biologists, but they're not just biologists, they're engineers, they're data informatics guys, um, you know, working together to address, you know, key in, and important questions in biology. Um, that no individual or even no one team, you know, one localized team can do. So it's about, you know, groups or teams of teams being able to work together. Thanks, Steve. That, that's great. So, you know, talking more about your, your research into proteomics, Steve, have there been any kind of significant breakthroughs that, that you've seen either by yourself or, or by others in the field? Um, and in your view, you know, that have contributed towards this notion of the 21st century yeah. of biology? So without a doubt, I mean, I think proteomics has been transformed in recent years. There's no doubt about it. And so for a, for a period of two years, I was honored and privileged to be the president of the Human Proteome Organization and get to, to meet and see at hand some of those individuals who've driven the transformation in proteomics over the years. And those transformations have been many and multiple. And it'd be really difficult to pick them out individually. But essentially, it's allowed us to, to undertake this analysis of proteins at a genome scale much more rapidly, much more effectively so and, and efficiently. And, and more importantly, I suppose, to take the data that's generated and interpret it much more efficiently. So it has been transformed completely. We can do things now that we didn't imagine we would be able to do 20 years ago. I think we now really are bringing to fruition our capabilities uh, in the world of proteomics, being able to, to measure, analyze, quantitate, um, modify, uh, edit proteins at scale in a way that for, for you know, applications in, in human biology and, and human disease in a way that a few years ago maybe wouldn't have been imaginable. Mm -hmm. And I guess with that, what sort of challenges do you think currently exist in, in the field that, that you feel need to be addressed? Yeah, so that was all very positive. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of, the things, one of the things about proteomics, and maybe this is why people haven't connected with it as much as they might, is that it's hugely complex. Yeah. So we know the complexity of proteomics and, and proteomes is massive. There are, there are millions upon millions of proteoforms, that's different isoforms of the proteins that are expressed from the genome. You know, uh, I always say over 200 modifications, but I was re reading recently that there are over 400 chemical modifications to the proteins that are produced. So the complexity, I think, underlies some of the challenges that we face. And, and the technologies of, there's no doubt the technologies have advanced enormously since proteomics began, but there's still, I think, potent the potential for, for massive advances in the future, because we'd like to be able to do that. We'd like to be able to do real-time, spatial, temporal uh, analysis of all of the proteoforms, and, and we're a long way 
from doing that. And that will require, I think, the development of new technologies. Darlene, how possible do you think it is to, to engineer biology? And, you know, ha what has the global impact been so far of, of these advancements? Yeah. Um, so, Phoebe, that's those big, big questions, both on the, the possibility to engineer biology and, and the impact so far. And, you know, when I think about engineering biology, you know, which is really about, you know, being able to understand, model, predict, uh, and, and, and get what you want at the end is predicted. You know, it's really only in the last two decades that biology has transitioned from being a more qualitative to an increasingly quantitative science. And of course, Agilent has helped enable that transition and, and it's been great opportunity for us with, with our measurement capabilities. I don't know that we know if and when it may be possible to model, predict, and engineer biology as we do today for the physical sciences, because there is still a lot that we don't understand and still need to learn about living organisms, living systems. So I think it's going to be a, a long time before we're going to be able to truly engineer biology, but there's uh, lots of research being done to take all of the understanding that we are getting of cellular systems to, to fully, let's say, complete the picture and be able to understand and predict. You know, global advancements, global impact in understanding biology, we're seeing several important areas uh, returning to cancer research and, and its translation and understanding and treating disease. You know, we've seen significant impact you know, even how we think about cancer, for example, you know, it used to be we think about um, cancer as being identified and treated based on where it's found in the body, right? And with the advancements of genomics and DNA sequencing in particular, we're now much more in tune to what a cancer is in terms of identifying it based on its mutations and molecular properties of the tumor, right? So major change, major new paradigm. You know, I mentioned immuno-oncology, cell and gene therapy, especially autologous CAR T-cell therapy, is already giving many patients whose cancers have essentially been untreatable up until now with very little opportunity to think about futures. Some of these patients are seeing complete remission um, in many cases, though, again, there's so many challenges to get these therapies to the point where they truly can be, be mainstream in terms of their uh, efficacy, production, and, and cost. And the other area that also excites me a lot is, is being able to do earlier detection of cancer and of other diseases. And this is where blood-based measurements of key markers, but being able to see that earlier, I think also for many diseases before they become more serious is incredibly important. And that's a lot of what's coming out of precision medicine is understanding the molecular changes that are most informative and can help us treat patients when they're healthier before they become much more ill. What do you both foresee as upcoming market trends in the areas of life sciences and biology? Darlene, do you want to start off? Sure, Phoebe. So there's many, many areas of, of great opportunity, many emerging, exciting areas. And I will, of course, defer proteomics to Steve, but we're seeing a lot of innovation and new technology and mass spec workflows aimed at accelerating and advancing proteomics. 
I think the, the broad appreciation for how much value there is in really understanding those layers of proteome complexity is huge. And it's not just improvements in instrumentation. We're seeing a lot of exciting work in innovative sample prep and data analytics that can address that performance, simplify the complexity, and, and improve the ease of use because these are very difficult studies. So I think that's proteomics for sure is, is an area, and I know you'll hear more in a moment, but single cell analysis and spatial biology are two other areas that I think are especially exciting and ones where uh, we have important partnerships through our early stage partnership program, uh, working with a number of startup companies. And while it is still early days, uh, I do want to come back to the cell and gene therapy because I see them as being so transformative relative to our contemporary therapeutic modalities of, of small molecules and, and biologics, and that they actually can cure disease. And it's not surprising, you know, we talked about the market growth as well as the technology. This is the fastest growing segment of biopharma today, expected to be $22 billion by 2025, which is just around the corner. So clearly attracting significant investment from, from pharma and from the DC community as well. That's great. And Steve, uh, over to you. Yeah, so I mean, just to pick up on the spatial biology theme, I agree entirely. I think if being able to do multiplex spatial biology allows us to get a, a bit of an insight into those molecules that may be interacting with each other and having a direct functional consequence on each other's capabilities. And, and I suppose aspirationally, I would like to see that spatial biology being, being able to be analyzed in real time. Now, more broadly and generally, I think looking to the future is always is really difficult. Uh, and it's, and I suppose, you know, we get constrained by our own uh, imaginations to some extent, but there's absolutely no doubt that the advances in biology are, are really set to be hugely exciting. Picking up on a couple of things Darlene said, I think that the pace of, of change is, is just going to be bewildering, I think, in terms of our bringing on board new capabilities, new technologies to be able to interpret biology. And, 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 the, and then I suppose the impact of artificial intelligence has just been phenomenal. So in the field of proteomics, you know, one of the biggest advances recently was the ability to predict protein structure. Okay, thanks, Steve. So I guess, you know, if you could give advice to the next generation of scientists, what would it be to say school children who are potentially, you know, considering a career in life sciences, and especially, you know, if they don't have anyone that they could go to, what advice would you give to them? So I suppose there are, there are two things that I would advise um, and one is that there is no there's nothing that can replace an inquisitive desire so a, a desire to to probe questions but to do the, the the work necessary to to sort of train get yourself trained to be able to probe those questions and i suppose increasingly as i see in our younger generation of scientists coming through the universities for me it's a very different world that they're living in it's a, it is this team world. It's a world where that's driven by promoting the science and the work that they do in, in ways that we sort of didn't have to in the past. So I think they've got a much tougher challenge than, than our generation of, of scientists when we were trained. And so I suppose the, the overarching thing for me is to whatever you do, to do it with integrity, because uh, we've seen and, and we continue to see the consequences of, of science that isn't driven by integrity. And Darlene, what, what advice would you give, if any, to the younger generations? You know, in, in pursuing these areas, I think that 
you have to go with your passion. I tried a few things before I ended up as a bioinorganic chemist and now, of course, I'm a broad technologist. But I think that the two pieces of advice I would give is whatever area you decide that you are really interested in, there's so much value in having a broad perspective in addition to your deep knowledge. And this comes back to some of the comments, Steve, you made around working in teams. We see that more and more innovation is happening at the interface of scientific disciplines versus within a specific one. So I think that's a great thing to do if, if you have the opportunity. I think the tough one is what if you don't have access to the resources, you know, from your family or, or you know, your, your immediate environment. And I think the thing to do is to get creative and seek out people that you can talk to. You'd be surprised how how happy and how gracious people are when they know that there's someone really interested in a career in this direction. So if the first person doesn't say yes, just keep going because there will be a lot of people who do. So uh, again, it's, it's a great time to be a scientist or, or engineer and our quality of life and our planet needs you. Great words of wisdom. Thank you both. Well, this has been uh, a wonderful discussion. Thank you both so much for joining me and taking your time to share your thoughts on this topic. Thank you, Phoebe. And thank, thank you, Phoebe. Steve. No, thank you, Diana. To all our listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation today just as much as we've enjoyed having it. Remember to tune in next time for another episode of Through the Science Lens. <laughs>